This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Separatist uh, authorities in Donetsk say Ukrainian forces were shelling the region for third day in a row Saturday as residents were called to stay in shelters. A video shared by Russian state TV purported to show apartment buildings and residential areas destroyed by the shelling. The video also showed people running to hide from what appeared to be nearby explosions. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says the group of seven leading democracies will make clear at their upcoming summit that Ukraine can expect to receive the support it needs for as long as necessary. In an interview with the German's DPA news agency published Saturday, Scholz says that he wants to use next week's meeting with fellow G7 leaders to discuss Ukraine's long-term prospects. He also called any hope by Russia for a return to normalty illusory. Scholz says that he has hoped European Union leaders would back Ukraine's bid to join the bloc when they meet sometime in Brussels next week. Army troops have been called to rescue thousands of people uh, stranded by massive floods that have ravaged northeastern India and Bangladesh, leaving millions of homes underwater and severing transport links. In India's Assam state, at least nine people were killed in the floods and two million saw their homes submerged. Lightning strikes in parts of neighboring Bangladesh have left at least nine dead since Friday. Both countries have asked their militaries for help as more flooding looms with rains expected to continue over the weekend. The, uh, one of Asia's largest rivers breached its mud embankments, inundating 3,000 villages and croplands. Train services were canceled in India, and in the airport in northeastern Bangladesh was closed by rising floodwaters. This is VOA News. U.S. health officials have opened COVID-19 vaccines for infants, toddlers, and preschoolers, the last group without the shots. The head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that decision on Saturday, hours after an advisory panel voted unanimously that coronavirus vaccines should be made available to children as young as six months old. The Biden administration has been gearing up for the start of the shots early next week. Millions of doses have been ordered for distribution to doctors, hospitals, and community health clinics around the entire country. Brazil's federal police said Saturday that a third suspect in the deaths of British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous expert Bruno Pereira has been arrested. The pair, whose remains were found after they disappeared about two weeks ago, were shot to death according to an autopsy. Phillips was shot in the chest and Pereira was shot in the head and the abdomen, police said in a statement. It said that the autopsy indicated the use of a firearm with typical hunting ammunition. The police said the third suspect, Jefferson De Silva Lima, known as Pilato, turned himself in at the police station. And the Amazon police said that the suspect will be referred to a custody hearing soon. Transportation Secretary in the U.S., Pete Buttigieg, says that he's pushing airlines to hire more customer service agents and take other steps to help travelers over the summer. He tells the Associated Press that his department could uh, take enforcement action against airlines that fail to meet consumer protection standards, although he thinks that that will not be necessary. He says that he wants to see how the airlines do over the July 4th holiday weekend and the rest of the summer. He held a virtual meeting on Thursday with airline executives where they described steps their companies are taking to avoid a repeat of the Memorial Day weekend when about 2,800 flights were delayed or canceled.
Still in the U.S., Yellowstone National Park is celebrating its 150th anniversary as it faces its biggest challenges in decades. Floodwaters that tore through the park this week destroyed potentially hundreds of bridges, washed out miles of roads, and drove out more than 10,000 visitors. The scope of the damage is still being tallied by Yellowstone officials, but based on other national park disasters, it could take years and cost up to $1 billion to rebuild an environmentally sensitive landscape. Park officials hope to reopen the southern half of the park next week, but the northern half likely will not be reopening this year. There is more at voanews.com. Again, voanews.com. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, an update on North Korea. Hello, I'm Rick Pantaleo, sitting in for your host, Carol Castiel. According to a web article by Ambassador Mark Green, President, Director, and CEO of the Wilson Center, a Washington, D.C. think tank, North Korea has so far this year conducted 31 missile tests. Among the tests, it's thought that the nation may have possibly launched a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile. Pyongyang is said to have conducted eight such tests in all of 2021. At a recent press briefing with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, South Korea's Foreign Minister Park Jin said that North Korea has completed preparations for its seventh nuclear test, and it only needs, in his words, a, quote, political decision, end quote, to do so. The last time they conducted such an event was in 2017. U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman has said that there would be a forceful response from the United States, South Korea, and the world if the Democratic People's Republic of Korea were to conduct a nuclear test. Kim Jong-un warned again in April that the North could preemptively use its nuclear weapons if threatened. After claiming that it kept COVID-19 out, North Korea announced its first coronavirus infection in May, more than two years into the pandemic. Some health officials have estimated that over 4 million of its citizens have been infected with the novel virus. The country has frequently rejected offers by the United States and the international community for COVID-19 vaccines as well as humanitarian and medical assistance. My guests for today are Bruce Klingner, Senior Research Fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and Ellen Kim. She's deputy director of the Korea chair and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank that's also based in Washington. Both guests join me today via Microsoft Teams. There are reports that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, speaking at a recent plenary meeting of the ruling Workers' Party Central Committee, said that he is more resolute on his arms buildup in what he describes as an aggravating security environment. Bruce, what do you think Kim meant by that term? And are there other motives for making this stance, such as perhaps internal issues? 
Well, I, I don't think there's really been a, a great change. I think it's just North Korea, in essence, sort of reiterating their justification for continuing not only their nuclear and missile buildup, but the overall arms buildup. So North Korea has been developing nuclear and missile programs since the 1960s or so, and they always justify it on what they call the security situation or the U.S. hostile policy, and they justify the nuclear weapons as a way of deterring the U.S. from attacking them, though, of course, we never attack them in the decades before they had nuclear weapons. So they will justify it saying that the U.S. is increasing its arms, South Korea is increasing its arms in order to attack North Korea. But the arms have been a response to North Korean actions and violations of 11 U.N. resolutions. So I think it's really more a continuation of longstanding policy, though the words may have changed for the justification. Helen, your thoughts? Yes, I actually agree uh, very much with um, what Mr. Cleaner said. And I think that basically we are back in this game of sort of period of North Korea's provocation cycle where North Korea is trying to ramp up all this weapon test and trying to increase their negotiation leverage before they come down to the negotiation table. This year, we already saw that North Korea has carried out a total of 18 missile tests, and that actually includes a range of variety of missile tests, ranging from the short, intermediate, long-range ballistic missiles, as well as submarine-launched and hypersonic missiles. At the same time, North Korea is believed to be preparing for nuclear tests again, so I think that they are trying to develop and perfect their nuclear capability, as well as trying to up the ante and trying to increase their negotiated leverage as much as possible to force U.S. and South Korea into making concessions. Ellen, you mentioned that North Korea is preparing for more nuclear testing. At a recent press briefing with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, South Korea's Foreign Minister Park Jin said that North Korea has completed preparations for its seventh nuclear test and only requires what he calls a political decision to conduct the launch. Ellen, what would Park Jin mean by political decision? I think that what he means by political decision is that the impact of nuclear tests is very significant and the timing is very important in that regard because essentially North Korea wants to increase, demonstrate nuclear capability in order to force U.S. and South Korea into making decisions. And also nuclear tests is uh, something that has a significant impact on its domestic audience. So I think that given that U.S. and South Korea they have been on a high alert for the possible nuclear test and also they have finished their all their preparation while North Korea is going through this COVID situation, food shortages and low public moral, I think the Kim Jong-un is actually looking at various internal and external situations to make a decide their uh, final decisions and to maximize the impact of this nuclear test. Bruce, your thoughts? Well, we've seen from reports from U.S. and South Korean officials as well as some you know, outside unclassified imagery that North Korea certainly was doing construction activity or preparatory activity at the known nuclear test site. So they dug a side tunnel to get to one of their main testing tunnels. And the recent reports have talked about that now that the entrance to that testing tunnel is open. But before they would test, they'd have to put the device in and then pack the tunnel to try to keep the large blast from coming out into the atmosphere, the radiation, etc. So I don't know if they've packed the tunnel yet. Once they put the nuclear device in and then pack the tunnel, then I think the test would be fairly imminent because they wouldn't want to leave the device just in there. So I don't know if they've taken that step or not. So we've kind of been predicting that they would do the nuclear test, whether it's on the big anniversary of the birthday of the founder of North Korea on April 15th or a 
April 25th anniversary of the founding of the Korean People's Army or in the mid-May trip of President Biden to the region. So we sort of know that it's going to happen. We just sort of keep second-guessing ourselves on the timing of it. And then also we debate amongst ourselves as to the reasons why North Korea is doing something, whether it's a missile test or a nuclear test. But I think rather than getting lost down the rabbit hole of debating the reasons, we should focus on the activity itself. So the missile tests are all violations of UN resolutions, and the nuclear test would be a very large violation of UN resolutions. So we need to respond to the action rather than sort of losing ourselves in the debate as to why they did it or why they did it on a certain date. And what kind of message do you think Kim Jong-un wants to send to the world regarding this test? Essentially that I think North Korean leader wants to send a clear message that North Korea is a nuclear state and then let the world accept the country as it is. And Bruce, when we talk about nuclear testing, can you give us an overview of what we're talking about? What is nuclear testing? What's involved? Well, North Korea has developed a range of nuclear weapons and warheads for their missiles, and then they have conducted six tests so far. So way back in 2006, we think the first one was only semi-successful. It was sort of a fizzle, only a few kilotons. Then they were having tests that were about the equivalent explosion of the 1945 Hiroshima and Nagasaki weapons. And then their latest one in 2017 was massive. It was perhaps 200 kilotons, 300 kilotons, more than 10 times the explosive power of the 1945 bomb. So we think they have not only developed atomic weapons, but also hydrogen bombs or thermonuclear bombs. So the next test could either be another one of those very large hydrogen bombs, or it could be much smaller which would indicate, uh, we think, that they have developed the next generation of small tactical nuclear warheads for the 14 or so new weapons missile systems that they've displayed and tested uh, in the last few years. So if it's a smaller explosion, people may pay less attention to it, thinking that either it was a failure or that they've done those small ones before. But it would actually be a very worrisome development because it could indicate that they've developed another generation of the smaller warheads. So people often are now saying, well, tactical warheads are a new thing. Actually, the U.S. and South Korea have assessed that they've had tactical nuclear warheads for at least a decade for their Scud and Nodong short and medium range missiles. And then when Kim made a proclamation recently, which people thought was a new twist in North Korean nuclear doctrine as not just deterrence, but retaliatory or even preemptive, that also is not a new development. We've seen statements since at least 2013 that North Korea vowed to preempt or to initiate a nuclear attack if they felt that they were about to be attacked or if they felt it it fulfilled their own strategic objectives. Ellen, what Bruce was just saying about preemptive use of nuclear weapons, and I understand Kim Jong-un warned again in April that the North could preemptively use its nuclear weapons if threatened. Mm. Your thoughts? So we need to pay attention to when it came out. So Kim Jong-un's warning of preemptive nuclear strike actually came right after Russia invaded Ukraine. And I think that really reflects how Russia's war in Ukraine actually affected North Korea's strategic calculations, thinking on the use of nuclear weapons. On the one hand, Russia's invade Ukraine probably further tightened Kim's grip onto his nuclear weapon as a war deterrent and also for his regime survival. But at the same time, I think Putin's threat of nuclear weapon use seems to have been 
emboldened the North Korean leader to think a threat of a preemptive nuclear weapon strike as a way to deter U.S. intervention in the Korean Peninsula. Speaking of uh, Russia and China, they both recently vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution that would have enacted new, tougher global sanction over Pyongyang's renewed ballistic missile launches. Bruce, your thoughts on this development with the U.N. Security Council? I guess it's an indication of how long I've been working on North Korea when I sort of <laughs> repeat you know, that, well, this is not a new development. It's part of a much longer trend. But China and Russia have always been obstructionist in the U.N. Security Council, particularly China, and Russia usually follows behind China. So China tends to act like North Korea's lawyer in the UN Security Council. They usually obstruct resolutions or they water them down before they agree to accept them. They deny evidence of not only North Korean violations of UN resolutions, but also Chinese violations. So they tend to also call upon both Koreas to show restraint when only North Korea is the one conducting violations or hostile action. So periodically, China and Russia would become so angry with North Korea after a particularly egregious violation of UN resolutions that they would accept an incrementally stronger resolution. And they've done that. You know, So we've had 11 resolutions, each one stronger than the previous one, but it took 11 resolutions to get to where we are today because Moscow and Beijing refused to allow sort of what the U.S. was originally proposing in either the text condemning the violation or the sanctions themselves. So, you know, given the strained relations now between Washington and Moscow over the invasion of Ukraine and between Washington and Beijing over Beijing's actions in the East and South China Sea, it wasn't unexpected that they would have Obstructed. Now, there are lots of things that the U.S. and other nations can be doing to enforce more strongly the existing resolutions or existing U.S. and international law, but we've all been sort of pulling our punches on that. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. I'd like to remind you that Encounter is available for free download at voanews.com encounter. You can also find our show on Apple Podcasts and other podcast websites. We hope you'll connect with us on Facebook at VOA Current Affairs or Carol Castiel VOA. You can also send us an email to encounter at voanews.com. Now let's get back to our program. I'm Rick Pantaleo, sitting in for Carol Castiel. Today, we're getting an update on North Korea. My guests are Bruce Klingner, Senior Research Fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and Ellen Kim. She's Deputy Director of the Korea Chair and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank that's also based in Washington. Ellen, you mentioned earlier how Kim Jong-un timed his announcement of using nuclear weapons preemptively when Russia invaded Ukraine. And seeing that China and Russia both voted down the recently proposed U.N. sanctions, do you think that North Korea is taking advantage of the tension between the U.S. and its allies with Russia after the invasion of Ukraine? I think North Korea certainly saw that U.S. was distracted in the war in Ukraine. So they all ramp up the missile test between this year. And I think that they clearly saw that there is a growing cooperation between Russia and China that North Korea saw that they could exploit it to their favor because they thought that they may not be willing to impose sanctions on North Korea. But on the sanctions issue, I think that it seems remains to be seen whether Russia and China will oppose or support another U.N. sanctions on North Korea if North 
North Korea carries out a nuclear test, but then their current stance makes the prospect of their future cooperation with North Korea sanctions essentially more difficult going forward. And I think that that leaves the U.S. and South Korean government to rely on unilateral and secondary sanctions, which may not have a direct impact on North Korea. And Bruce, let's talk about the missile testing that North Korea has been conducting. Recently, North Korea fired eight short-range ballistic missiles toward the sea off its east coast, a day after South Korea and the U.S. wrapped up naval drills in the Philippine Sea. Then, after North Korea fired those ballistic missiles, the U.S. and South Korean militaries also test-fired eight ballistic missiles the day after they conducted the weapons test. Are we seeing a bit of tit-for-tat regarding the U.S. and South Korea and North Korea? Well, uh, the U.S. and South Korean response, now under a newly inaugurated conservative president, we're going to see Seoul sort of standing up more strongly to North Korean threats and insults and provocative actions. During the five years of the progressive administration of Moon Jae-in, they repeatedly turned the other cheek. So when North Korea threatened and insulted and did provocative action, Moon didn't want to respond because he thought that would undermine efforts at improving inter-Korean relations. Yun looks like he will stand up for South Korea. And whether we now have a policy of one-for-one missile response, we'll have to wait and see. As for when and why does North Korea do their missiles, not everything is a signal to the United States. And some of it is determined by the level or the type of launches that North Korea has done. So some of them are routine military activity, particularly very short range. The recent, we think it may just be artillery firing That was likely just routine military training, which North Korea does. They haven't reduced their military activity despite the U.S. and South Korea curtailing for four years its military exercises. Some of it is developmental testing. If it's a new system, they test it in order to see if it works. So the 31 missile launches so far this year, the 26 in 2019 and and others in between, in large part were developmental testing of the 14 or so new short and medium range systems that they developed. Some of them were testing of already deployed systems, so more like testing the war plan that North Korea developed after Kim Jong-un came into power. And then sometimes it is a message or a signal of defiance to the international community or a signal of intimidation to South Korea or finally sort of a message to the North Korean people themselves of North Korean resolve standing up against the international community. Ellen, in March, North Korea claimed that it tested its biggest long-range missile that they say could reach the United States. This has been a long concern of Americans about North Korea developing a missile that could actually target the United States. U.S. and South Korea said that the test was faked and that it was tested was the same North Korea fired in 2017. Your thoughts? Well, I do not know exactly whether it was uh, really uh, the Hwasong 16 that they North Korea claimed it was, but clearly, but North Korea is making uh, incremental steps to actually improve its capability that can actually target the U.S. homeland. And I think that whether it, the test was failure or a success, I think they learn from this failure to make every improvement in its capability. So I think whether they failed or not is not an issue. The important thing is that they continue to make improvement in their capability, and they're getting closer to develop a really capability that can hit the U.S. homeland. Bruce, what are your thoughts? Do you think that North Korea does possess a missile that could hit the United States? Yes, they demonstrated that in 2017 with three missile launches. The two that they launched in mid-year of 2017 
they fired all of them at a very lofted trajectory, almost straight up in the air, so as not to fly over Japan and be more provocative. So the three tests in 2017 and then the two tests in March of this year were all on that lofted trajectory. But what they showed was that the Hwasong 14, which is the ones they launched in July of 2017, could reach about half of the continental United States. If you extrapolate the distance if it was fired on a normal trajectory. And then the Hwasong 15, which was launched later that year, showed that they could hit the entire continental United States. So they have that ability already. The two ICBM launches in March of this year, the first one we think was the larger, newer system, which either the Hwasong 16 or 17, we're still waiting for North Korea to tell us what it's called. That one failed after 20 kilometers altitude. Then about nine or 10 days after that, they launched what we believe was another Hwasong 15, but to an even higher trajectory. So we know that they can target the entire U.S. with a nuclear warhead. And so they're just continuing to work on this larger multiple warhead system that failed in its first attempt but we think they'll just keep going and that eventually it will be successful. So, you know, Kim Jong-un, unlike his father, will continue tests of a failed system fairly shortly afterwards where Kim Jong-il, the father, would sort of wait quite some time to make sure that the next time was more likely to succeed. Kim seems to accept failure as, as a cost of improving the missiles. And Alan, despite its escalated missile testing and the threat of new nuclear tests, the U.S. and South Korea say they are open to talks and diplomacy with North Korea. Your thoughts? I think that it's not clear when and how diplomacy can resume in this current situation. But as you said, the U.S. and South Korea are open to dialogue and diplomacy, and the ball is in North Korea's court. And if you look at the recent appointment of Choi Son-hee as North Korea's first foreign minister, I think that sends a signal that North Korea could be preparing for future talks with the United States. Choi is known as an experienced but tough, very tough negotiator and knows the U.S. very well. But I think that if North Korea carries out a nuclear task before coming to a negotiation table, which I think North Korea is trying to do, we will likely see an escalation tension in the region for a while before diplomacy can actually resume. Let's move over to the situation in North Korea regarding COVID. And after claiming a perfect record in keeping out COVID-19, North Korea announced its first coronavirus infection in May and has repeatedly rejected offers by the United States and the international community. Ellen, your thoughts about COVID and the North Korean people? Yes, as you said, North Korea uh, claimed that they had no COVID cases in the country for almost two years after the global pandemic began. And they actually instituted a zero COVID policy with the border lockdown and which actually suspended all trading activities. But recent recognition that the country had COVID cases now indicates that a lot of people actually believe that North Korea claim was kind of skeptical. And no one actually really knows how bad the situation is. There are things that we know. One is that country has a very dilapidated healthcare system. They do not have a sufficient testing capability and medical supplies to come a global pandemic and North Korean people are not vaccinated. So, so many health experts actually warned that new various virus variants can emerge from the country. And North Korea recently began to claim that much of the unfolding health crisis is now under control. I think as of June 10th, North Korea reported more than 4 million people fever cases and 72 deaths. Or those numbers, I think, is very highly skeptical. 
Bruce, you recently wrote that the country's basic health care system, emaciated population, and lack of medical supplies make it dangerously vulnerable to a pandemic crisis, and that Kim's repeated rejection of COVID-19 assistance may have doomed his populace to needless suffering and death. Please comment on that. Well, for all the reasons that Ellen pointed out, is the population is very susceptible to, you know, a pandemic in the country. And, you know, although we never trusted North Korea's claims that it had no cases for two years, nor do we sort of believe the claims that they've turned the corner and things are improving, it, the situation is puzzling because, you know, two years ago when COVID started, I and others had thought that if COVID got into North Korea, and how could it not, since all of its neighboring countries had it, you know, it would spread like wildfire given the poor condition of the populace, the lack of supplies, et cetera. You know, certainly there have been reports of some deaths and outbreaks, et cetera, but not the really the massive outbreak that I think many of us expected. And then now when they've admitted it and millions of cases of high fever, which I'm sure is COVID because they don't have enough testing, but again, we're not seeing reports of lots of deaths and their claimed numbers, which show they have a lower sort of death to population ratio than South Korea, the United States and other countries where we've been vaccinated. We have good medical systems. So, you know, I think information gets out from North Korea, but you know, we're not hearing of sort of you know, mass graves or massive number of people dying. So I find it very puzzling. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem that they could possibly have done better than the rest of the world, but we're not seeing indications of kind of the, the massive deaths that we might have expected. So, and then certainly the, the food shortages will exacerbate the conditions of the population. And then just decades of failed socialist economic policies really are the underlying reason for why the people are, are doing so poorly. And I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to thank uh, both you, Ellen Kim, and also Bruce Klingner. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Bruce Klingner, Senior Research Fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and Ellen Kim. She's Deputy Director of the Korea Chair and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank that's also based in Washington. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's program. This is Rick Pantaleo for Carol Castiel. Please join Carol next week for another encounter on The Voice of America.